downloading UW Alumni Voices. I'm your host, Josh Van Camp, and today we speak with Melanie Brock, who's one of Japan's most respected APEX specialists. Melanie talks about her time growing up in Albany, learning different languages, which kind of took her to Japan through a scholarship through the Rotary Club. And Melanie's been many chairs, you know, Emeritus of the Australian and New Zealand Chamber of Commerce in Japan, been on the Australian Rugby Foundation. We discuss all those things as well as her, her role on boards and advice that should give to any young leader looking to be on a board but if you really enjoy this podcast or all the other episodes please subscribe rate review we'd love to hear from you and if there's any other speakers you think we should be hearing from let us know but the podcast with melanie brock starts now now melanie you're one of japan's most respected apac specialists was an overseas career always a goal of yours and how has uwa influenced your career well, um, thank you for saying uh, that. Um, I don't know if I'm, you know, um, the most respected, but I've certainly been here for quite a long time. Um, I've lived in Japan now for nearly 30 years, over three different stints. Um, the first was when I was 17. So before I um, went to uni, actually. Um, and then I got a scholarship to study um, Japanese studies um, in Japan in between second and third year of uni as well. And then the last stint has been the longest, um, well, 25 years now. So that's a, a, quite a long stint. But I mean, UWA um, greatly um, influenced me. Um, I guess, you know, I deferred um, from high school, you know, from uh, secondary school in Albany in Western Australia and came to Japan on an exchange program and went back to UWA. Um, that was probably one of the hardest things because people didn't do what they call gap years, I guess now. Mm. Um, and so you, I fairly much felt that I'd um, left everybody behind or I'd, you know, I'd been left behind more because everybody, you know, you just went straight on to uni. You didn't defer in those days as much. Um, but in any case, I, by coming to Japan, which I hadn't chosen as a place of, of where I wanted to be, um, I had another group of people who I'm still very close to who I went to UWA with and they were in second and third year of Japanese. Um, so it's, UWA has been a source of, you know, obviously um, great friendship and, and fellowship and, you know, everything really for me. But it probably set me on a path that I um, wasn't aware I was going to be on when I was at high school, that's for sure. Yeah, so Japan was never really at the top of mind during your high no, school days? No, I didn't. Um, I really wanted to be a Rotary Exchange student because Dad had been, um, was in Rotary. Um, and so we'd always had exchange students at our house and um, I'd always met people. And I'd wanted to, I guess I wanted to go overseas, but I don't think I, um, I, re I always wanted to be an exchange student. That was sort of where I sat. And Dad was in Rotary and we'd had exchange students staying at our place and in the town. and. So I guess I was really conscious of that. I don't really think I thought about whether I, where I would be living, whether it would be, you know, Perth or Sydney or, um, but of course in those days, that's 1981. Um, I don't think, I think UWA had like a continuing education campus or something in Albany, maybe, but it might've even come after that. So the option was never with um, you as a country, as a kid from the country that you wouldn't be in Perth, for example. Mm. So. Whatever you did, you had to leave Albany. That was clear. But I don't know in my mind whether I thought leave Albany, leave Australia. Um, probably not, I would say. Um, but having said that, then learning Japanese, after I came back from Japan, um, that sort of changed everything. Or, well, actually, more importantly, the, the decision to send me to Japan changed everything for me, I guess. So what, what was the, I guess, the biggest reason for going to Japan because you said you didn't choose it. So I guess it was yeah. just a scholarship opportunity. Were, were there other countries you were looking at at the time? Oh, as well? totally. I, um, I put down, uh, I think I put down uh, West Germany as it was then. Oh, wow. <laughs> um, and uh, um, French speaking Canada. And uh, I'd done Italian at high school and Indonesian as well. So I was very conscious of, you know, going somewhere where I could use um, either language that I'd learned or um, learn a new language. But when the, um, the letter came back and it said, and my friends always still um, laugh at me now, 
um, you know, that I remember crying at the idea that I was going to Japan. I was horrified um, because I, not because I had any views on Japan, just simply because I think I had that romantic notion that all, you know, young 16, 17 year olds in Australia in 1980s, 70s have, which is going to Europe, you know. Um, so that shows you how things have probably changed too. It also well, shows you that the decision, I guess, going to Japan, how much it's impacted on your oh, career. Totally. Do, you, do you look think going, oh, if I did go to French-speaking Canada, maybe I, I might have been in Canada for all these well, years. I might have spoken French, which would have been nice. But um, I do, I, I met with some of the Rotary um, selection um, committee guys, you know, like maybe 20 years ago or something. And I do remember saying to them, um, you know, what, what prompted you to send me to Japan? And they said that it was because they'd had a lot of trouble with um, uh, kids getting homesick in Japan because the language learning is so difficult. Yeah. Um, and they felt, I think, that I was going to be able to get over that because I'd learned Italian and Indonesian at school, <laughs> which, you know, is just a joke because my Italian was really bad and my Indonesian probably worse. Um, so, but I, I sort of understand their reasoning. Um, they also said that I, you know, was thinking on my feet and, and you know, whatever else. And, and I seem to be, I guess, confident. I don't know. But maybe they, maybe they factored that all in. But I think they'd had a few kids who were really um, finding it hard with learning Japanese. And um, so they thought, oh, there she goes. She's a, she's a linguist. She can go, which, of course, I am so not. God. Well, you're sorry not, but yet you, you were a senior interpreter at the Australian Embassy in Tokyo. Can you yeah. walk us through how you came about getting that job? Well, I, um, I'm very grateful to UWA, actually. Um, and we just lost um, Coveney Sensei, Mrs. Coveney, last year. Um, uh, and she was our first Japanese, she was my first Japanese teacher when I came back from um, the exchange program in early 1993. Um, and, you know, mum left me at the gates of, you know, Winthrop Hall and off I went. And I was so nervous and so worried after living in Japan. I don't know why, but I found my Japanese class. And I remember Mrs. Coveney saying to me, because I'd been in an area in Japan that was very um, uh, regional, very rural, and they have a strong dialect. And on the very first day, she sat me down and she said, do you think you'd like to use Japanese in your career, in your profession? And I said that I thought I did, that I wasn't sure, but I, 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 was, I love Japanese. Um, and she said, well, we need to work on that because your Japanese is very um, rural. It's, very, it's got a strong dialect. Um, it's rough. It's guttural. And you won't be able to use any of that language um, in a profession, professional setting. So are you up for some extra work? And she used to sit with me after the class um, and correct my intonation and how I um, phrased sentences, etc. And so it all started there in, um, down in the arts building in, oh no, it was, no, it was in the, because we were in the economics building, you know. So it was, it must have been in there. Anyway, it was in 1983 and I remember she spent a lot of time with me, um, ensuring me that, or, and just guiding me on what approach I needed to take to language. So I'm very grateful to her um, and the structure that meant that there was a real professionalism around Japanese language learning. Um, and so I realised it was my thing, I think. I really loved learning and I put a lot of effort into it. Um, and then in 1985, I was awarded the um, Japanese language, oh, it was the West Australian Government Scholarship to study in Japan for a year. And so I did that, as I said, between year uh, second and third year. Mm. And another um, university lecturer pushed me to do that, um, Stefan Kaiser, who we still chat with and what have you now. But um, then I went on to do my master's at UQ and that was potentially, it's one of the only three, there are only three places where you can do Japanese language uh, or Japanese simultaneous interpreting in English virtually. Um, one was Monterey, one was UQ and one was I've forgotten where. But so I went to do my master's. And so that, that gave me another level of um, skill because of course, speaking a language and being able to interpret it are two different things. Um, so, and then I, after that, I had my two sons in Perth 
And I was very conscious then being half Japanese that I wanted to be back in, you know, I wanted to give them exposure to Japan as young people, as little people. And so we moved in 1995 and I very luckily got a, a role at the embassy um, in the interpreting and translation unit um, through a friend at, from UQ actually. Um, and uh, I was interviewed and I got the role. So, um, you know, it's a, it's a long, the, the thing about language, as you would know, is that you never feel proficient. Like, I don't think you can ever consider yourself perfect. Mm. Um, and I'm certainly not. But, the, you know, the very experiences, the various experiences you have are the things that push you forward. And working at the embassy was amazing. It yeah. shows you the power of an alumni network there, there, you know, your connection at UQ helped to get provide you that opportunity. Can you walk us through what a typical day at the embassy as an interpreter is like, or is every day different? Um, yeah, I mean, I am more naturally an interpreter and I, I have um, qualifications in interpreting at a higher level than I do in uh, translation. But in the, in the embassy, we um, worked as a team and so you sort of had to just, you know, muck in on, on both. Mm. But of a morning, we would scour the newspapers, which of course would be done now by, you know, through AI and clippings and what have you. But we physically went through all of the Japanese newspapers and, and pulled articles that were related potentially to Australia or had uh, interest to um, Australia. And we would then show them to one of the um, diplomats who would make a decision about which articles needed to be then uh, translated in full and what articles needed to be translated in part. So then we um, would, you'd have, say, if you had a vis uh, visitors in town, you'd accompany those. So that I guess the embassy's um, work for me was terrific because it gave me a very solid understanding of what government uh, is and also what a diplomatic mission is um, and what the foreign, you know, what foreign affairs is compared to, you know, the Department of Defence, for example. Um, you know, and I understood a lot about the, the, the differences between agencies. I also had a great exposure to Japanese, uh, you know, government workings, because a lot of the meetings that you would do were with counterparts in Japan, of course. And so I learned a lot about um, just how, how things are done there how different it is to business, I guess, to, you know, to the private sector. Um, and yeah, so I was in the interpreting unit for a year or so before another um, UQ graduate actually turned to me and said, do you want to work in the education section? And then I moved into um, heading up the education section at the embassy because the A-based, the Australia-based officer, you know, the diplomat hadn't arrived. I think there was a gap for a period of time. And that was a fantastic experience because I was able to use my Japanese not for interpreting but for developing um, different, you know, like programs and government to government linkages and alumni programs and, and what have you. So that was really interesting too. So learning a second language, I mean, for you, three, four different languages growing up, it's clearly important for you and your future careers. But what do you say to other people who are thinking about learning a second language? Is it, is it, is it important for everybody to at least have Absolutely. another second language? Absolutely. Yep. Get on with it. You know, like, <laughs> I mean, I, I, I'm, you know, just do what you can. I mean, you know, if you look at what's available on your iPhone now um, with various apps, you know, you're a goose if you don't. Because, you know, it's so, it must, I mean, I even now think, you know, I, at one stage I was thinking about learning Spanish and I've been lazy as everything on that. Um, but, you know, I'm still learning Japanese, so I, I guess that keeps me going. But, you know, I, I do think, I, I don't know that, I know it's about the process of learning a language that is also important rather than being able to speak it and, you know, like it's learning about the culture. So, you know, when we teach um, young children in primary school, um, you know, Indonesian and Japanese or Chinese, Mandarin or whatever it is that we teach now. I know it's about them learning about cultures that are either within our communities or outside. So there's there's that part of learning a language that I think is of course important. But I also think, think it would be just fantastic for more Australians to want to learn a language mm. so that they can feel that amazing joy when you actually are understood in a language other than your own 
but more importantly in the language of your host you know like if you're mm -hmm. traveling in i don't know malaysia and you know or if you're traveling in korean i mean imagine how fantastic it it must feel when you finally can use a sentence and they get it you know it's fantastic well i do know that feeling <laughs> but i i wish that there would be more focus on languages do you I remember really do. that maybe first moment of living or traveling overseas and speaking in, in the, the local language? And oh, well, you know, I arrived in Japan and I didn't know a word. Um, I remember the flight attendants on the Qantas flight taught me how to say, um, I don't understand. And then because, and I can't work out why they taught me how to say because, which was ridiculous. Because <laughs> um, I didn't even know what the language was before that, you know. So... Um, but I'm very grateful for the thank you. But I sort of think, how is it that I didn't know that? You know, I mean, God. But, um, you know, I mean, but, you know, if you think about it, when I first heard that I was going to Japan, the first thing I did was go to the encyclopedias that mum and dad had. Now, those encyclopedias have long gone um, and young people wouldn't know what they are. Um, but, you know, I had no options to find out about Japan other than through um, the encyclopedia. I mean, we didn't have the internet. Um, there weren't many Japanese, well, there, I doubt that there was a single Japanese person in Albany. Um, I don't think there would be a person who spoke Japanese in Albany potentially. There are a lot of people who knew about Japan, um, but mostly through, you know, business maybe a little bit. Um, so anyway, I think that there was, um, there's so, it was so limited then. But when I arrived in Japan, I just had my wisdom teeth out in like 10 days before I flew, which is also random. But I remember I was trying to explain to my host family that I had a, like a, I was swollen in the face and I had really sore mouth. And I, and they didn't speak any English and I didn't speak any Japanese. And now I know what the word for wisdom teeth is. I think, well, there was absolutely no way I could have crafted that. So, I remember not being able to say anything more than the moment I remember how to say something. So how do you say wisdom teeth in, in Japanese? Well, it's, it's actually a phrase to, to not know your parents. So, which basically is, you know, when you're not wise, right? Like if you, oya shirazu, I think, yeah, that oya shirazu. So it's sort of completely, there's just no way I could have got that. <laughs> um, and you know, my son had his teeth out, I don't know, five years ago or something. And I remember thinking, oh, isn't it funny? He's, he was uh, more uh, proficient in, English, in Japanese than he was in English. And I had to teach him that they were called wisdom teeth. And so it was sort of like a real full circle more than anything else. But um, yeah, I don't remember. I just found on the weekend, actually, a copy of the speech that somebody had helped me write. Well, obviously, they'd helped me write. I had no idea how to say it. Um, that I gave at my first Rotary meeting in January of 1982. Um, and it's random as anything, like it's ridiculous. But <laughs> when I think about it, somebody must have sat with me and said, what do you want to say? And I must have said, I'm from Albany. I have a sister and a brother. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I'm 17. You know, I mean, it's, it's crazy. Uh, love it. But I do let's... remember being really frustrated yeah. and very... Um, that frustration, now I think back about how little I knew and how I can't imagine how I got through each day um, because it must have been very um, fr like um, daunting um, and not being, able, not being understood is so frustrating. But I do remember the moment when I turned that frustration into, well, not the moment, but I do remember turning that frustration into determination and I was very clear that I was going to crack this language. I was did you very have to have, did you have a lot of have to have a lot of patience as well? Oh, well, I think more than me having patience, I think the people around me must have <laughs> been champions, you know. I mean, I would have just been gibbering for months and months and well, for the whole time I was there. I don't think I made any sense. Um, so you imagine they need the gold star. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and I still know these people, I know all my host family still. And oh, that's great. I'm, you know, close with the young, um, with the second generation and the third generation now. Um, but, um, you know, I do look back on that and think what an incredible gift they gave me to persevere. 
That's brilliant. Now let's fast forward a bit to today because you founded the Nishigo Network in March this year, a nonprofit yeah. organization created to retain and expand the people-to-people links between Australia and Japan. Why did you choose to found the network and how difficult has it been growing a network during the COVID-19 pandemic? Well, the, it's still a very baby, you know, um, early days for the Nichigo Network. But what we have, what we've discovered was that um, there are a lot of Australians in Japan who have a great commitment to Japan and obviously a great commit, commitment to Australia. But as you know, even with internet and, you know, having the news and potentially because now you have so much access, we sat through the bushfire sort of summer season and really felt um, helpless. I remember talking to friends in, you know, Queensland and um, WA even about the same feeling of helplessness that, you know, people would feel about, say, for example, you know, the south coast of New South Wales, and then it started to happen in Victoria, or then it would happen in South Australia. And so it was sort of a feeling of, when are you next? Or, you know, how do you help your community? And I think we felt so far away and so helpless um, that we all did... We gathered, like we all came here one morning, or one evening rather, and had a um, sort of just a, a discussion about what we thought we could do. And we established this small little network called Koala Dachi, which is a, um, a play on the words of friend is Tomodachi and Koala and Koala Dachi. Because when we were thinking about how Japan was responding to the bushfires, you could see, like Australians too, that one of the terrible um, concerns and great fears was what the bushfires and the you know ongoing um, environmental problems create for wildlife and mm-hmm. you know our natural um, flora, uh, flora and fauna and so I do remember us saying you know like the Japanese played stuff on the news and there was great um, concern for Australia and you know many of the business communities and different people committed um, you know funds uh, donations to support Australia, etc. through that period. But the thing that really resonated with people is I guess the connection that Japanese have with Australia in many cases is that when they went, when they've been to Australia for their honeymoon or on school trips or, you know, as students, they always um, get a photo of themselves with a koala, you know, there's, (laughs) it's sort of a very strong memory and a connection. And so we decided to try and focus on the issues of the environment, sustainability and Um, the sort of disaster management, I guess, through the koala and through Australia's wildlife. And that then built onto this desire to do something more about Australia and Japan. And I think it's probably, you know, that Australia and Japan has a terrific um, and an ever-building relationship and an ever-growing relationship, I think. But there tends to have been in the last few years, potentially, Um, focus on other areas in the Asia-Pacific that might have um, taken away some of the um, discussion and and research even and study or focus about Japan and Australia. And we felt that at a grassroots level, um, we could do something to try and revive and bring more focus back onto that Australia-Japan relationship. So we started it and it's very tiny and it's very... um, gentle and it's very um, committed but we've got a bunch of Australian people in Japan who are um, either academics um, working in different companies throughout um, Japan um, uh, other people who are you know more connected to Australia on a daily basis and we're just looking at different ways that we can sort of bring the focus back onto the Australia Japan relationship. Will there be future of face-to-face connections between Australia and Japan? Yeah, and you know, the um, Australia Japan Foundation, which I was on the board for um, five years, you know, that's been a terrific part of the the government's support of the relationship. And so we put in a a grant for um, some activities that would allow for some face-to-face, I guess. And, um, but unfortunately, because of COVID, those grants were um, the process or the submission process has been delayed. But I'm sure that when we get up and running again, and we look at what might necessarily be needed now, um, you know, I mean, I I know in your work and the work that that UWA has done overseas, you know, working with alumni is really important. Well, you know, we won't have as many opportunities to work with the um, alumni face-to-face, but maybe our network can be a connecting point for universities. Mm-hmm. You know, maybe maybe we can help 
um, universities where the universities that we went to um, by being the sort of agent of change to keep the conversation happening with Japanese who visited who visited our universities and studied there and stuff. So there there could be any number of things I think mm -hmm. that might happen, but we're all just trying to struggle through the through COVID at the moment um, and uh, and get get beyond it all. Now, one thing is your network in Japan is far and wide, which is probably an understatement. It includes corporate, political, and government sectors. But how do you not only grow your network in Japan, but how do you manage it? Well, you know that that manage part is really, really important, and um, and and I think it's underestimated in corporate Australia um, how important the follow up might be, um, or rather how important the personal touch or the personal nature of a contact um, or, or contact management or whatever you want to call it. You know, it's not just about a computer system or platform that allows you to, you know, connect and what have you, but it's the genuine nature of those connections, I think. Mm -hmm. And so, I mean, that's a long winded way of saying that I think it's really important that we focus potentially more on the follow-up than always the how can you help me bit, which comes first. Um, and I've tried to do that. I'm, I fail all the time. You know, like I'll remember that it's somebody's birthday, like a key contact, and I just send them a text. And, and Japanese don't ex um, have their birthdays like we do, I guess, and particularly Japanese men. And so they're always overwhelmed, you know, that I remembered. <laughs> And, and they're like, oh, my God, why did you remember that? You know, but they're also, I think, a little touched. Yeah. Um, and then I, I, I think, oh, that, you know, that's so important to do. And then, of course, I forget three in a row or something, you know. So the man, <laughs> I think you're, it's very important that the managing it is, is, is done professionally and with the same commitment that you have when you want information from them. So, you know what I mean? Like, you can't mm. go to someone and say... I really want you to do this for us because it's an important part. Do you think you could help out? And then maybe not do the follow-up part as well. So anyway, I think it's a struggle because you've also got to make sure that you don't make it um, fake because um, nobody likes that. Um, but yeah, I think being Australian helps me in that sense because mm. I think Australians are pretty down to earth. Well, there are a lot that aren't, but I think that we're mostly down to earth and we're sort of um, not so maybe in your face as other countries who speak English. You know. touched on before about people being fake. Can you tell when someone's being fake and, and not genuine in regards to them wanting to engage and connect with you? In a second. <laughs> <laughs> um, and uh, and I, I watched the Japanese because... As a good friend of mine pointed out, it doesn't actually matter in the Australia-Japan relationship as much for me whether what Australians might be saying about different things, but it's watching how Japanese respond to something that teaches me the most about what the next steps might be and where we might need to um, support more or do more. Um, so I can also, I think I've got a, um, a really solid detector for fake nonsense because I see it in the faces of the Japanese who are also being served that up. Um, but it's recognising it and then supporting it one, is, is one set of skills, I think. But really, it's managing that um, for the Japanese. Um, so, I mean, that sounds very philosophical, but it, I think it's just that people naturally want to do work with people who they admire and respect and like. And you just don't want to do anything that impacts on that. And I think being fake is one of the first things that makes people think, oh, I don't know if I could really trust this person. Yeah. Are there moments where you go, like, I know from my personal experience when I've seen people kind of just come into a group situation, hand me their business card, say a little something and then move on. It's kind of like, well, yeah, what hello. do I do with this? Yeah. <laughs> And yeah, that and also I think um, when people assume that, I mean, J Japan's, I mean, we like to call ourselves, you know, Australians like to call ourselves egalitarian, I think. And I think in part, we, in, in most parts we are, um, probably less so now, um, which is, you know, compared to years ago. But when I look at Japan, it's quite a flat 
society doesn't have class structure. It doesn't have, well, you know, it, it does have fancy people and not fancy people. And there are a great number of people in um, under the poverty line, which is awful. But I think in terms of like, you know, just because you meet the, I don't know, the CEO of something or the chairman of something, they're still very damn, like they're very, um, they're not fancy. They're not, they don't have like, they don't uh, uh, act out of, like you know, they're not. Yeah, they don't put it on, put on stuff as much. And and mm. I think that 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 has taught me a lot about um, the genuine nature. So I think in most cases, and of course you've got personality differences in Japanese people, like you do in Australia, of course too. But I think there's a genuine commitment to, say for example, the card holding, uh, the handing over process. That means that people, when they look at your, you know, they say, oh, hi Josh, how, you know, oh, you don't react. I have a friend who, you know, there's a more of an engagement at that level. Mm. Um, and I think that they're taught to be flat across the board that just because you're a chairman, of course it gives you added access. And, you know, that, that does mean that you're, you know, different in the, in the hierarchy and, and the like, but everybody deserves, you know, I think, I, yeah, I think Japan's just a flatter um, handling of that. And potentially that's shown me how to be less, uh, like to be genuine in those moments too. Um, having said that, you know, sometimes people give you cards and you think, oh, what am I going to do with it now? You know, I've got no way of having any connection with you. Um, but I, I think you're right. I think that the people who just hand you the card, like it doesn't mean anything. Having said that, I don't mean that you have to hand your card in a special way. I don't think there's any need for us to be that caught up in that part of Japan. Um, but I think the inquiry and the interest is something that, you can't fake, can you? You know. No. Now let's yeah. talk about your time, all the board roles you've been on, because we have seen a wide movement towards greater gender diversity with initiative focus on increasing female board representation. But what was your first board role, and was diversity inclusion words ever uttered in that boardroom? Um, I um, have been on um, a great number of uh, uh, very, you know, like um, not for profits and what have you, and probably my first. Um, solid sort of role as, as chair was uh, as the head of the Australian New Zealand Chamber of Commerce, which is a voluntary organisation and what have you. So, um, but um, I remember at the time we talked about whether we would announce that I was the first female chair. And I, I wasn't so pushed to do that. I felt that by doing that, we were making a statement that I, I don't know why, I mean, maybe it was I felt that we, were, we didn't need to or we, we shouldn't. Um, that it might embarrass other people or not. Um, but I do remember we have we had a really solid sort of discussion about how we would man manage that. And and diversity inclusion was really key in it. Um, but I never felt that it because it was a group of Australians and New Zealanders in Japan, it was a sort of a separate set of like ideas that we had to consider. The the board that I'm on now is the board of Sega, the entertainment company, Sega, I think we call it in English. Um, and um, that Sega Sammy, that board is, I'm the first female, but I'm also the first non-Japanese on the board. Wow. And so that has also been interesting because it's shown me the true nature of the word diversity and inclusion, um, the phrase, as opposed to it being just gender. So that's really important, I think. Um, and the Nikkei, the, the major Australian, uh, Japanese newspaper picked up on that um, on the day that I was appointed and it was on the front page, you know, where there'd been this big shift to um, more women being appointed to boards and the like. But in Japan, we've still got a long, long way to go. So I sort of really respect the courage of the, not the courage, but the, the leadership demonstrated by Sega Sammy in appointing me when there are no targets really in place to have um, female board members, but they went about it because they thought it was the right thing to do. So that was a great thing, I think. Yeah. So why is Japan compared to, let's say, Australia so far away? Yeah. Look, you know, a lot of people say that it's a pipeline issue, you know, that there aren't simply um, women who've been supported in the workplace to have um, attained the skill level, perhaps, that you, you would need before you appoint them to a board. You know, I think it's just, I think there's, there just hasn't been the will um, you know, there are a lot of really fantastic um, Japanese women around. I think if people were a little more creative, they would um, very quickly adopt 
um, a, a better target. But, you know, it's what you are, you are what you see type of thing. And so, you know, you just don't often see women on, on panels or, you know, the, there'll be a discussion on the TV and there'll only be men. And, you know, the COVID response committee had like, you know, one woman in, you know, how many ever. And so I don't think people, then women, it doesn't allow for women to naturally aspire to do things. And the system sort of doesn't support it. So it's a tricky business here, I think, in that sense. But I, it's not because men and the system don't respect women, because I think there's very strong respect for, for women in Japan um, as teachers, as mothers, as grandmothers, um, but it just hasn't translated. Um, and of course, the only way that you'll get that push is through quotas, um, because targets just don't have to be met um, if there isn't any um, sort of real reason for these people, for, for these systems and these companies to be making different decisions. So of course, that's one of my key um, focus points is doing what I can to demonstrate why um, it's important for Japan, not just for um, for women, but it's important for Japan and Japan's bottom line. So what advice would you give to maybe young leaders in Japan or in Australia pursuing a role on a board? Uh, um, read as much as you can about companies. Like just get, you know, I think people don't read enough. I don't read enough, but I'm, I always am know how important it is to have like focused on what might be happening and then learning more about it and and what have you um mm. i think you have to um follow things very closely look at how those companies uh what their areas of focus might be you know recently we've been having a lot of discussion about decarbonization and how japan um might look you know it's it's adoption of the sdgs you know sustainable development goals is quite remarkable in japan you know and so if you looked at the way the government's picked up on that, on how businesses picked up on that, and then if you chose to look at a few individual companies, you'll see the ones where you naturally might have an area of um, engagement, if you know, at, at any level. And so if I think you were young and you were looking at, you'd want to look at the trends in business, you'd want to look at the areas of focus for that country, of course, but you'd want to read as much as you can about those companies and how they're hoping to bring about those changes. And then you need to get involved with them like whoever it is that you want to be working with, you've got to know more about them and then find yourself going to, you know, or attending sessions where their CEOs might be speaking or where they've got um, engagement groups with community or, you know, and just, just get involved um, and, and, you know, um, get, get going, just get sorted. <laughs> you know, I mean, I, I just think there's sometimes it's a long uh, journey and a long, uh, I hate the word journey, but I think it's a long, it is a long journey mm. and you've got to be in for the long term. So you've got to get your goals set and just bloody well move. Now, you were also the chair of the Australian Rugby Foundation. We haven't chat before, before we, this podcast about with the Rugby World Cup being in Japan last year. Can yeah. you share about what your role was in the foundation and how important was it for the game of rugby to be in Japan? Because those that didn't see... I mean, Japan did really well at World, World Cup and yeah, probably, I think it? everyone's second favourite team, I could imagine. Yeah, it was really special, actually. And, you know, I'm a, um, a you know, a, a footy, as in um, Aussie rules, you know, um, person. So it was it was unusual for me because here I am thinking about rugby and, you know, I just never would have thought about rugby. Rugby was, you know, for fancy boys, <laughs> you know. And, um, <laughs> and, you know, I, I didn't even know if Albany had a rugby team, actually. Um, but... Uh, you know, and go Frio all the way, I say. Um, but so it was sort of unusual for me to be um, so focused on rugby. And I remembered my dad saying to me, you know, why all about rugby so? And I thought, well, it was because we knew Japan was hosting the Rugby World Cup. And from that time, it was such an um, important moment for Japan. A lot of people thought that it was sort of a preliminary to the Olympics. You know, it was like a rehearsal. Mm -hmm. Um, and in some ways, I guess, in terms of the management of it and the actual execution of the, the tournament, it might have been. Um, but I think in the end, it became the main event because the, the, the key reason I think it was important was, well, as you say, Japan became like they just did so well. But it was held, the, the tournament was, the matches were held outside of Tokyo. And so you just saw this incredible love of, uh, the tournament of the game 
of the players. Um, so local people, you know, country people who might not normally have been able to um, see these, that level of um, play, uh, especially, you know, in any sport, let alone um, rugby, became aficionados and just like straight up, you know, big rugby fans. And so it was great for the sport, um, great for regional Japan. And of course, when Japan started to do like, well, it was always seen as an underdog. But when it started to win, it was like, you know, the place was on fire. Um, and I do, it was a very emotional time. Uh, we had a particularly difficult um, typhoon come through in um, during uh, the, one of the matches in Kamaishi up north, actually, and it cancelled that and it cancelled a series of matches that people were due to go to. And I remember Japan played Scotland on the day after. A lot of people had died in the um, typhoon and what, and, and so the, the minute silence that they had at the start of the game um, was poignant. But the moment that Japan won, it was like Japan had been given this boost and, and this um, lift. And it was really, really important. And now I look back on that, it feels like it was sort of a decade ago. But I think it was more important than ever for Japan to have demonstrated how, um, uh, how much um, guts they had you know, because mm. I think it was skill and everything aside, it was just this huge um, passion. But the fact that they were able to, as the underdogs, just win, you know, it was remarkable. Yeah, it was really important, I thought. And you would have had all this momentum going into 2020 with the Olympic yeah. Games, but due to the pandemic is postponed until next year. And, you know, we're assuming it will happen, but we, we still don't know this talk of no, we don't. Olympics will happen with no fans. So what's being said about the Olympics there in Japan? Well, you know, a lot of business people um, doubt that it will. A lot of government people don't want to make that statement. Um, the IOC is in charge, of course. So, you know, it might not be the... Um, the position of any of us to make that decision because that decision will be taken out of our hands. But, you know, I think that um, for Japan, um, the Olympics were an important uh, event, mostly to show the world, I guess, you know, what Japan had achieved and, you know, different areas of focus, etc. And what a great um, uh, sort of country it is in terms of um, providing as a host, you know, I mean, the Rugby World Cup demonstrated that clearly how people just love being here. Um, but, you know, the reality is that a lot of people uh, are in very difficult times now because of um, coronavirus. And there's so much uncertainty. The tourism sector um, has been sort of, you know, decimated. Um, you know, the, the, the Olympics might be the return for a lot of those industries to um, better times. Mm -hmm. But I don't know. Sometimes I think that people are a little bit concerned that the focus would go on the Olympics rather than on um, helping Japan to recover from uh, this sort of incredible impact on its economy. Um, so I think there's, I think people are mixed at the moment. Yeah. I don't know. You know, somebody said to me the other day, oh, you know, Japan must be devastated about the potential that the Olympics are not held. And I don't think they'll be devastated, quite frankly. I don't think, I think it'll be great. Um, it'll be sad, but mm. I don't think they're going to be devastated. I think Japan would rather, um, you know, know that it um, had committed to the recovery. But at the same time, I look at the way the Rugby World Cup um, brought great focus on Japan and sort of really pushed people and gave a lot of people a lot of joy. So I sort of think, you know, maybe, maybe people would, maybe it would be good for Japan, you know, and I think it would be, of course, you know. Yeah, I mean, it will bring, definitely bring the country together and more eyeballs yeah. into it and definitely will help yeah. businesses and tourism and that. And Absolutely. I think we've, we've seen that in, in, in other cities as well. Uh, another role I want to talk to you about is your role as a global ambassador for advance.org. It's a platform that connects global Australians to one another and to Australia. So what does your role entail? Well, this is also a really um, interesting part, I think, of, um, of a sort of a post-COVID or, you know, Japanese call it after Corona and with Corona. And so I think we're sort of all in the with Corona um, period at the moment. But 
you know, Advance has been operating for some years now, um, but uh, we're fairly much focusing on how we can support the diaspora of Australia. Um, so there are Australians who are living overseas, who, who look at some point to travel home to um, live in Australia or at least work in Australia for a period of time. And so you've got a whole bunch of Australians overseas. They, I think we think there are about a million or so um, Australians working overseas. Now, COVID showed us, you know, that great pull to being home. I think there are a lot of Australians, I don't know the numbers, who would have returned home when they were able to. Um, and they're now working from, um, uh, you know, in, in Australia. Um, but obviously, um, for us, we want to focus on the Australians who are working in Asia, and in my case, in Japan. And so this is where I think it'll be really interesting for the universities as well, for the tertiary sector, because um, once we identify who the Australians are, we then also know which universities they went to, we'll know, you know, who they have connections with, and we can hopefully enhance that for the various universities that are looking to engage in the, in the region. But my role will be just simply to um, oversee the launch and to make sure that we support the Australians who are here and we build on the work that they're doing by raising awareness about that in Australia. So that might help them when they go home, but also raising awareness about the commitment and the, and the contribution Australians are making to Japan. And so we're launching um, Advance in September and we've got a terrific bunch of Australians um, who represent a great different like a, a range of sectors, um, uh, you know, there's good gender diversity, there's age diversity. Um, so I think it'll be really interesting because we'll just, uh, we want to shine more on and, and put the showcase or, or showcase or sort of like focus on, on Australians in Japan who might not necessarily be known because they're working in Japanese companies or foreign companies. Um, and then look at how we can connect the two. So it's a big job, but it's it's voluntary again. Um, I've got a great um, support network in um, Australia through the Advance Office. Our new CEO is fantastic. And um, Yasmin Allen is the um, chairman and she heads up a board who look at how Australia can be better focused. Yeah. So how do you balance your work life volunteer opportunities? Because you do do a fair bit, Melanie. Yeah, you know, I. I, I guess I've given up on the idea that I'm ever going to be a specialist in anything because I'm just a generalist and so across it and a whole range of things. But what it does is it does give me great um, insights, I think, into um, how people are, um, which I think hope helps with all of things, you know. Um, how do I balance it? Not very well. <laughs> um, with a glass of Australian white wine, often. Um, uh, with a great deal of hope that it turns into um, something serious, I guess, in terms of legacy. Um, you know, I'm 56 now, and the the great thing about Japan is that 56 makes me a bit of a spring chicken um, because they they all work so much longer and they're all active a lot longer. So I don't feel like I'm sort of over the hill yet. Mm. Um, but... I, I do, you know, think about uh, the Australia-Japan relationship and I, I hope that what I'm doing is strengthening that and building it um, to be something that, you know, I would love to see more support for languages in Japan, in Australia rather, and it would be terrific to see more um, exchange between Australia and Japan. So hopefully what I'm doing, albeit that I'm not balancing it very well often, um, is, is heading in that direction. Now, you talked about being a generalist. Is there a part of you that is passionate about one thing or can you be passionate about everything um, that you do? I think you can be passionate about a lot of things. I think that that's... When I said that thing just now about realising I'm not a specialist, I potentially mean that, you know, it's not like I can play basketball very well. We can't even play basketball. But do you know what I mean? Like, I'm not... <laughs> I, can't, I can't even do one thing really well. Um, and I guess it's learning that you can do a lot of things very well without, uh, yeah, and that, that that's fine. I think that's the point that I was trying to make, that you don't have to, um, you know, be publishing in feminist uh, writings or, you know, theories or um, new gender and, and diversity inclusion 
you know, you don't have to be giving papers at conferences all around the world to be very passionate about wanting to bring about change. Yeah. Um, you know, I don't, um, I don't have to live in um, Albany and or where I lived as an exchange student to be very passionate about regional, gov uh, regional development and, and, and supporting country areas as opposed to just the cities. Um, I don't have to be a rugby um, player to know um, how important um, sport can be for a community. Um, and, and so I guess it's that, that area of passion and just having that passion goes back to what I said before about just getting on with it. I think that sometimes, I mean, I have to take my own advice too, because, um, you know, it's hard in these sort of really tricky times to keep focused. I think, um, I think it's very hard for people at the moment. And so I don't want ever to be seen to be flippant by saying, get on with it. But where you can, you have to, don't you? You just you have to. Yeah. Now, that's all the time we've got, Melanie, but I have to ask you yeah. one more question. Uh, yeah. If you could give a piece of advice to a recently graduated Melanie Brock, what mm. would that be? Um, read more. Uh, learn more. Or keep, no, read more and keep on learning. Um, and um, make a difference. Like wherever it is and whatever area it is, just do your absolute utmost to learn and read and know. And by virtue of that, you will make a difference to not only your community, but potentially a broader group. Um, but I think I would, I would say to that, uh, to, you know, the person I know graduated you know, back in 1980, whenever it was, um, look outward too. Like I think coronavirus will potentially make it much harder for us to look outside um, because we'll naturally become more inward, folking, in, inward focusing. Mm -hmm. So I really think it's important for new graduates to, to push themselves to look outwards and to look beyond your physical environment at the moment, as hard as that is, that's what I would have said to to Melanie way back in, well, whenever, <laughs> way back when. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's good. That's that's really, really good, solid advice. Now, Melanie, if people want to learn more about you or want to engage with you, what's the best way? Um, my Probably the website or follow me on Twitter. Um, I'm pretty active on Twitter um, and... Uh, um, yeah, melaniebrockjapan.com. Um, and that has all the contact details. And I'd love to hear from UWA graduates. I'm very um, proud to be a U UWA um, graduate and I have a great deal of friends who are as well. Oh, beautiful. Well, Melanie, thank you so much. Appreciate your time. Not at all.